X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jeff. I'm from Portland. And it is Friday, November 20th. It is the season of gratitude. We're grateful for those who came before us, grateful for those who work with us now, grateful for those who are going to follow us to strengthen our democracy. We're grateful for you, the listeners and supporters of the local and of X-Ray. Next week is Thanksgiving week. If we think it's about turkey, that's not enough. If we're celebrating stolen land, we're really celebrating the wrong thing. But if we're celebrating gratitude, if we're acknowledging the blessings that we have, if we're appreciating the human beings in our life, that's something worth doing every year and maybe more often than that. And that's something that a pandemic can't stop. That's something we can do on Zoom, in a letter, in a phone call. That's something we can do in our hearts and minds. So let's get ready to recognize the giving of thanks. And think about what you're thankful for. If you want to share something with us, you can do it at the local at x-ray.fm. X-ray. Today, back in the day, November 20th, 1805, Beethoven's only opera premiered in Vienna. Fidelio, first started in 1803 by Beethoven for German actor Emanuel Schikaneder. In exchange for free lodging, the opera went through several drafts and name changes before premiering at the Austrian Theater. It ran for three nights. It was relatively unsuccessful. Vienna was under French military control at the time, and the French military class that made up much of the audience was uninterested in German-language dramas. After a poor opening, Beethoven revised the opera, fitted into two acts the following year, revised it again in 1814, despite being almost completely deaf. Beethoven hated the process of writing the opera, would never make one again. He wrote to a friend, This opera will win me a martyr's crown. Today, back in the day, November 20th, 1985, Windows 1.0 was released. Development for the operating system began in 1981. Bill Gates was inspired by early graphical user interfaces. That includes Macintosh, of course, and the Xerox. The first version of that operating system required 192 kilobytes of RAM. For comparison, most recent Windows operating system, Windows 10, needs 10,000 times as much. The first edition of the software focused on multitasking applications like the CPU taxing calendar and the clock apps. Doing that at the same time, your calendar and your clock at the same time. Initial reactions were mixed, many computer enthusiasts noting the potential while remaining disappointed with lackluster performance. Microsoft has released a mock version of Windows 1.0 that runs an app on Windows 10. Today, back in the day, November 20th, 1933, Frank Aiken was murdered while investigating corruption at the Port of Portland. The original port was established in 1891. The port operates Portland International Airport, maintains channels in the Willamette and Columbia Rivers. From the 20s to the 30s, the port was a source of controversy in town. James Bohemus, general manager of the port, as well as the commissioners, were accused of favoritism. They were suspected of adjusting dry dock rates for friends, as well as a host of other suspicious business activities. Governor Julius Meyer hired the private auditor, Frank Aiken, to investigate those allegations. But before he could produce any results, Aiken was murdered. It doesn't suggest that people were innocent. The murderer was never found. Port officials were able to be cleared of suspicion. Now the port is still a pretty big deal, but fewer murders. And commissioners are appointed directly by the governor. Today we'll have your Quick 6 News headlines. We'll have an interview with Chris May, a journalist at Street Roots. X-Ray. And first up, it is time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Yesterday, workers began the sweep of the homeless encampment in Laurelhurst Park. After a few weeks of protests against the sweep, a team of rapid response BioClean and a group of volunteers began clearing the camp in which nearly 100 people were living. The city of Portland posted a notice to the camp in early November explaining the plan to clean the area. 
Protesters gathered at the park shortly after that displacement of the people living there, many there to provide support to the residents, including offering food. Protests didn't appear to develop on Thursday, some believe due to coronavirus concerns. Some of the volunteers helping people pack their belongings had attended the protest. A spokesperson for Mayor Ted Wheeler claimed they did do outreach to the people living at the camp and referred several to a shelter at Mount Scott Community Center. Spokesperson cited the public safety and health concerns associated with the encampment. Police officers did not appear to be present on Thursday. And now your daily dose of data. On the first day of lockdown, the Oregon Health Authority reported 1,225 new cases of coronavirus and 20 new deaths. The state totals are 60,873 cases and 808 deaths. As of Wednesday, 414 Oregonians were hospitalized with COVID-19. That number is up 137% since the beginning of the month. On November 1st, 171 people were hospitalized in Oregon for COVID-19, and just a week ago, 290. The largest jump in hospitalizations occurred in Multnomah County and southwestern counties Jackson and Josephine. In April, hospitalizations peaked at a little over 300. These next couple of weeks will be crucial in slowing the spread of the coronavirus, thus decreasing hospitalizations and deaths. Everyone must do their part. Last November, the city of Portland announced the new Portland Street response. Just last week, they hired their director, Robin Burke. How come it took so long? Burke says when the pandemic hit, the city went into a hiring freeze. That, combined with labor negotiations and other logistics associated with a program like this, have slowed the process. Currently, the team is working on the dispatching system, which will go through 911. PSR, Portland Street Response, is a crisis response program aims again to reduce police interaction with those suffering from mental health episodes or homelessness. PSR is designed to be similar to CAHOOTS, which is a program in Eugene, Oregon. In 2019, CAHOOTS responded to 19,000 calls. That was in Eugene, Oregon. The team that PSR dispatches will consist of an EMT, a licensed mental health therapist, and a community health worker. The Gresham mayoral race is up for a recount as Travis Stovall is leading with only 13 votes. Recounts occur within a 0.2% margin. Stovall finished with 16,648 votes and Eddie Morales finished with 16,635. The recount will likely be complete after Thanksgiving. Stovall is a moderate candidate focused on business and the founder of EREP, an employment recruitment agency. Eddie Morales is a progressive community organizer who is currently serving on Gresham City Council, where he will remain if he loses. Transgender Awareness Week closes today with Transgender Day of Remembrance. Transgender Awareness Week is celebrated each year from November 13th to November 19th. The week is capped by Transgender Remembrance Day. November 20th asks people to gather and honor the lives of those who have been victims of anti-transgender violence. Here's some of the ways that Portlanders will be memorializing those lost. The Q Center will dedicate their roll-up door to be a Trans Day of Remembrance mural, fueled by the public until December 8th. Here's what the Q Center had to say. While trans, GNC, and BIPOC community members have stood on the front lines of the resistance movement that garnered the whole community rights and privileges, their own needs have been repeatedly pushed aside. This must change. Black and Beyond the Binary Collective and Forward Together will host an event on Facebook Live called Trans Diaspora of Resilience. The event will feature non-binary and trans artists of color and grounding exercises led by a local healer. Our beloved Trailblazer star C.J. McCollum will partner with Trap Kitchen to deliver free Thanksgiving turkeys. 
Trap Kitchen PDX will be handing out the free uncooked turkeys this Sunday to those in need. Trap Kitchen is a Black-owned food truck on Northeast 82nd, which features Southern-inspired comfort food. Previously, Trap Kitchen has teamed up with rapper Amine to offer free meals to Black Portlanders after the death of George Floyd. They said in an Instagram post, quote, During the current times, our people need as much comfort and unity as possible. Trap Kitchen will be handing out the turkeys on November 22nd at 3137 Northeast 82nd Avenue until 3 p.m. or until they run out, whichever comes first. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. And now we have a segment with Street Roots reporter Chris May, author of the article No Fund Me. He'll be discussing with DJ Ambush the pros and cons of GoFundMe. Uh, if you're on any social media platform, chances are you've seen a GoFundMe campaign from nonprofit fundraisers to individuals just trying to make ends meet. GoFundMe is a crowdfunding uh, juggernaut. It's a force for charitable giving and mutual aid, but it can also be a shot in the dark replacement for reliable social safety nets. Joining us from Street Roots is reporter Chris May, author of the article, No Fund Me. He'll help us look at the promises and disappointments of GoFundMe. Chris, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Oh, man. So what initially drew you to the subject of online crowdfunding? Well, back in September, I was covering uh, the wildfires in Oregon. Uh, for street routes um, and some of the disaster relief efforts uh, down there. And, you know, whenever you have situations like this, um, there's always a lot of people who want to step up and, and help help people out. And you also have a lot of different organizations um, raising money to do their part. Uh, and GoFundMe is sort of part of that. Um, and, you know, I saw that there were lots of people that needed help and that there was also a lot of money being raised uh, on the platform. And so I just started wondering, um, you know, in many ways, GoFundMe isn't a charity. It's a for-profit corporation. Mm. So where where is this money ending up? You reported that it's actually pretty rare for GoFundMe campaigns to meet their fundraising goals. Why is that? Well, part of it is the the company told me they don't actually track how many campaigns meet their goals. And part of the reason is mm. you can you can adjust it upward if you're doing well early on. Um, but despite that, there's been some researchers who looked into this question themselves, um, and they were specifically looking at fundraisers for uh, medical, medical purposes, medical bills, and things like that. Okay. And they found that about 9 out of 10 people didn't meet their goal. Um, and so if you're asking about, you know, how successful will you be if you start a GoFundMe, if, you're in, if you need to raise some money, the answer sort of depends. And one of the things that it depends on is, you know, how much melanin you have in your skin, mm. um, how, how good you are at editing video, um, how, how photogenic your family is. So things that, you know, aren't really tied to what the level of need is. Wow. Uh, GoFundMe can definitely help build a sense of belonging when strangers donate to your campaign. But it can also make you feel really isolated if you fall short of your goal. How do you think GoFundMe influences the way we think about community and community responsibility? Yeah, so there definitely there definitely is that tension between, you know, 
is is this a is this a example of communities coming together and helping each other out mm-hmm. in a time of need? Um, I think part of that's definitely true, but then you also have questions about how do a lot of these uh, online platforms and networks exacerbate systemic disparities that we know have existed for a long time. Um, and so I think you see both of those things happening. And, and because a lot of times these are really emotional uh, issues for people, right. there is a strong pull to do what you can. Um, but, you know, especially as companies like this get larger and larger and, and larger amounts of money flow through them, I think it's important to ask questions about how that's handled and, and what level of transparency there is. You mentioned a couple of key factors in uh, successful campaigns and, and you know, uh, how photogenic your family is and the amount of melanin in your skin. Uh, in your research and reporting, are there types of campaigns or types of people that seem more likely to succeed? Like, what exactly have you found? So there are uh, multiple studies that were done, uh, mostly from researchers at the University of Washington. And they analyzed hundreds of different GoFundMe campaigns. And they were trying to get at, you know, what makes a campaign successful? You know, what does it take to meet your fundraising goals? You know, how do you do that? Um, And a lot of their findings were pretty troubling. Um, Mm. For example, um, black people and black women in particular were underrepresented on the platform, um, despite what we know about there being a disproportionate need, especially for, for medical care. Uh, not to mention uh, disparities in levels of treatment that um, that they receive. So that was one thing. Okay. Um, but even when you do have uh, representation of marginalized people on these platforms, on average, uh, for instance, black people make $22 less per donation than people from other groups. Hmm. Wow. And and that's really catching me off guard because you know there's there's algorithms here that you know amplify certain campaigns uh, while minimizing others, and you know you don't you don't necessarily know is this algorithm like algorithms that you see in law enforcement and other contexts that have shown to reflect some of the inherent biases that we kind of all carry around with us, right? Um, Or is it? the subconscious choices of people who are scrolling through pages and pages of people describing their tragedies and sort of saying, you know, this is, this is the one, these are the people that I want to help without maybe realizing that that could be a part of a larger pattern of behavior. Right. Wow. (sighs) Accountability can be a big problem for GoFundMe campaigns, especially in the activist world. Have you found there to be any safeguards in place to make sure that funds are actually being used for their stated purpose? You know, I think it. You you get a lot of different um, perspectives depending on whether you ask the company themselves. Um, I can tell you that if you're donating to someone you know, um, and you can verify that they received the money, you know the potential for fraud is is almost non-existent. Um, mm-hmm. But there were nearly four million fundraisers on GoFundMe last year. Um, and they're being overseen by uh, roughly 300 people. Um, so, you, you know, there have been some high-profile scandals uh, in places like New Jersey. Um, there was the Build the Wall debacle with Steve Bannon. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, yeah. you know, but the answer is that we don't know exactly how serious fraud is on the website um, because the company's not very transparent about mm. that information. Mm. Oh, boy. I do remember uh, coming across that build the wall situation with uh, Steve Bannon and seeing some of the commercials with that, get your name on a brick. And it was like, what are we doing? Right. And then you have, you know, postal service employees arresting him on a, on a yacht somewhere. <laughs> right. Unbelievable, man. Unbelievable. Uh, at the end of your article, you touch on the lack of state level oversight of charities. What kinds of regulations would you like to see for crowdfunding sites moving forward? I think that's a great question. Um, you know, the, the scale of this is kind of staggering. You know, there's millions of charities and nonprofits out there. Um, and then when you think about, you know, who's keeping an eye on them, uh, it's, it's pretty limited. In Oregon, for instance, there's 22,000 registered charities, um, which doesn't include all of them, but you have a handful of lawyers and a couple investigators um, who are tasked with kind of making sure that the nonprofits and charities are doing what they're supposed to be doing. Um, so I think that, uh, there should be, you know, right now it's basically if someone complains or if there's a report filed, then there's sort of a reactive response when something goes wrong. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a journalist, so I'm always pro transparency, pro oversight, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, these, these take resources. And the question is, you know, where are those resources going to come from? Because right now we don't spend any tax money on uh, oversight of, of charities or nonprofits. Right, right. You said, uh, you know, in, in our current state, you know, people are responding. Uh, even in those reactions to um, notices of impropriety, how fast does that happen? I mean, is, 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 is this something that you got to submit so many complaints over and over again before you see someone actually take action on it? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a good question. I think it's a mixed bag. Okay. Um, in the article, I spoke to a woman who essentially started her own website, sort of chronicling, um, you know, allegations of fraud on the platform. Um, and she told me that it, it is sort of hit or miss. Um, sometimes you'll get a follow-up. Sometimes problems will get resolved quickly. Mm. Uh, sometimes they won't. And, I'm, you know, I'm not really sure what the, what the factors are in, in whether or not that gets addressed. Um, but, you know, again, part of it is, are you, are you donating to a campaign across the country? And, um, you know, if you, if you donate five bucks and you never hear anything about where it ended up, are you going to, you know, spend a lot of time tracking Checking that down on your own and making sure it ended up at the right place? Good point. Um, you know, she would, she would say that she would get a call and people would say, Hey, you know, somebody put up a GoFundMe for my kid. Uh, who died, and I never saw the money, mm. um, you know, and, and it, sometimes it can be a huge ordeal to try and, you know, call the police or try to figure out who actually is, is responsible or who has the ability to sort of track this down if if the company isn't going to handle it. Mm. Man. So I want to thank you so much for your time this morning, Chris. Like, thank you for joining us. Uh, yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks to Chris for joining the local Big Thanks production team. That's a special thanks to the Magic Man, Will Romy, executive editor. Supporting editors and writers, Miranda Salinger, Jonathan Covington Bram, Sophie Mallon, Ryan Miller, Julia Oppenheimer, Carly Quadros, Julissa Ringer, and Ryder Sherwood, and Sam Smargiasa. Big extra ups to co-executive producer Emily Gilliland. I'm Jeff Smith.
Thanks for original journalism and research by the Lund Report, Oregon Health Authority, COVID19.healthdata.org, the Oregon Historical Society, Portland Business Journal, KGW, The Willamette Week, COIN, Pamplin Media, OPB, K2, The Oregonian, Statesman Journal, and news partners, The Portland Mercury, Street Roots, Eater, and Portland Tribune. Thank you for listening to Local in Your Hometown in about 30 minutes. Thanks for subscribing. Thank you, Democracy. Talk to you next week. And remember, think of things you are truly thankful for.